Hello everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Before I start today's episode, I want to give a special thanks to everyone out there who listened to my podcast. I am overwhelmed by the response that I've gotten. You guys are amazing. The support is overwhelming and I couldn't be more thrilled and excited. It just drives me to want to continue on and make the best content available. I just want to give a really special thank you to Jerry Polly, the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. He has mentored me throughout this whole process. I recently retired as an ER nurse after over 20 years experience and I've always wanted to be a podcaster. So back in February I decided to pursue my dream and made a quick contact to Jerry and from that point on he's been helping me every step of the way. He's an amazing guy and his wife Tracy is also incredible and supportive. So. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Tracy, for all the help and support that you've given. Please give a listen to Hillbilly Horror Stories. If you haven't had a chance, these guys are amazing. Uh, It's a mostly paranormal show with some true crime mixed in. The content is excellent, but it's also fun because they're just easygoing people and serious when need be and funny as hell always in between. So thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Tracy. So without further ado, here is episode three called Dr. Lobotomy, the story and history of Dr. Walter Freeman, the lobotomist. I really struggled over what to do in the next part of the series because there really is so much information and I really don't want to bore you guys and bog you down with small details. So I'm giving it my best shot, and I hope that I can keep you interested. I thought it would be good to start back in his childhood. I believe that Walter was destined to be the person he was, a sociopath, psychopath, regardless of his upbringing. But I think his upbringing most definitely added to it and made it worse. And I'm going to tell you exactly why. He grew up in a very privileged and wealthy household. As a child, he was the oldest of seven brothers and a sister. And he was sickly his whole life, especially as a young boy. Now, this may seem a little cruel to say this, but I almost wanted to entitle this section, Only the Good Die Young. And as you know the rest, the bad live on forever type thing. (laughs) And it sounds terrible that I would say this about a young child, but when you see the man that he becomes, you can understand my little tongue-in-cheek reference. At 14 months old, he had 30 enlarged lymph nodes that were removed from his neck. Probably nowadays, we wouldn't remove those lymph nodes and would treat him for some type of infection, but for whatever reason, it showed that he had some kind of chronic illness going on for a long time. Now, this surgery caused permanent paralysis in the muscles of his neck. So he had a droop in his shoulder and neck. Now, after that, he had a tonsillectomy. 
And then this is the illnesses he had right one after the other. Diphtheria, measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, mumps. He had pink eye. Not such a big deal. Maybe it was then. But he thrived despite these infections. Any one of those infections in those days could have permanently damaged him or killed him. Yet, for some reason, he, able, he was able to survive them all. This particular incident I find really fascinating. And this is where maybe my theory of someone was looking over his shoulder. When he was an infant, his family was renovating the home they were living in. They were doing actual renovations at that time, and a pickaxe came right through the wall. He was in his crib beside that wall, and the pickaxe went through the wall and crashed into his crib and missed him entirely. What are the chances of that? Now, with him being a child, I'm glad nothing happened. But holy crap, all those diseases and then almost getting skewered, that's insane. He lived in a prestigious neighborhood called Rittenhouse Square, and it was a community mostly made up of doctors. He was considered an inquisitive little boy, and they gave him the nickname Little Walter YY. <laughs> now, knowing the kind of person he'd become, I would maybe call him Little Walter. Shut up, Little Walter, go away. Little Walter, go play in the traffic. Or Little Walter, why, oh why? Anyway, as he was growing up, he didn't have any friends until he met his cousin, Morris DeComp, and they became quick friends. Morris was an outgoing kid, and they were inseparable, and they had this thing in common, which was hating girls together. At eight years old, he started school. Now, his school was only three doors down from his house. So this also contributed to him being a very sheltered kid. So all his teachers were men and he was considered an excellent student. He loved going to school because he hated being at home. He didn't like being at home or at least around his family because his mother, who was a very cultured woman, wanted her children to become cultured and he wanted nothing to do with that. Let me tell you a little bit about his mother. Corrine Freeman. Maiden name was Keen. She was an accomplished singer and musician. She immersed her children in culture, music, and painting, and she herself was very social. She attended church faithfully, and she had a sofa put in her room so that her children could visit privately and discuss concerns one-on-one. -on -one. Fast forward a bit, Walter's mother died at the age of 64. And Walter was never close to her. He didn't develop any close relations. He felt no warmth or love or kinship towards his family. In fact, he would never develop attachments to anyone in his life. He would either respect and admire a person and mimic them to have the things that they had, or he just didn't care at all. When he was a grown man, he of course left the house and moved on to adult things but he felt no need to ever go home, visit, or celebrate holidays. And this is what he said in regards to his mother, that she had long let go of her devotion to duty theme for me. 
her expectation that her oldest son would dote upon her in her old age. And he stated that he never had any deep affection for her. Now, I think that's kind of strange because most children have an affection towards their parents and towards their mother, especially, I think. And even in terrible abusive situations from a parent, children being the pure-hearted beings that they are, continue to look for that love in a parent. And for him to flat out from day one on not to have an affection towards his mother, I think is startling and shows his sociopathic traits, some of his psychopathy early on. What caused his mother's death was a bowel obstruction. She was sick in the hospital for days and in great pain. And this is what he quoted as saying during his mother's death. My eyes were moist when I saw her fighting in the O2 tent, oxygen tent, but dried up when she died. And that's when he confessed he never loved his mother. Just cold. His upbringing was unorthodox and some of his family members were quite strange. All of his siblings were raised by different governesses. So they were often apart from each other and each governess had a different way of raising a child. This just exacerbated Walter's inability to develop relationships. His siblings saw him as a cold brother and he really embraced and liked the role of the distant dominant older brother. Now, let's talk about his father. He was an interesting guy to say the least. Walter hated his father. Walter's father's name was Walter as well, so we'll call him Walter Sr. He was an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he hated being a doctor. He wanted to be a naturalist, but his family would have none of it. He came from multi-generations of physicians. He didn't have any esteem among his peers. He only did the minimal amount of work, papers, articles required, and attended only the conferences that he had to. He was a real loner of a guy. He didn't like people. He didn't like to be around people. He just liked to keep to himself and read. Now, his father-in-law didn't respect him for all of those reasons, and he didn't approve of him. His father was an unhappy and solitary man, and he avoided doing anything with his wife and children. The only thing that he would do is take his children on camping trips once a year because being that he wanted to be a naturalist, he loved being out in the country, in the forest, woods, etc. So he wouldn't participate in any uh, activities with them. He would keep to himself and read and let his children run around and entertain themselves. He developed no worth or closeness with his children. It was a very formal relationship. Walter called his father shy, socially awkward, and, and humorless man whose example taught his son to regard emotional expression as something strange and frightening. He wouldn't express anger and disappointment towards his children when they got in trouble. This is what he would do. This is so creepy. So when one of his children would get in trouble, he would express his anger and disappointment by not punishing them, but by punishing himself. Just want to interrupt here for a second. I've got 
there's a wicked rain and thunderstorm going on in the background so I apologize if you hear any rumblings or rain but it kind of goes with the topic a little bit so maybe that's my ambiance anyway so his father would take his own belt off and he would whip himself his children would watch him self-flagellate I can't even imagine how horrifying that would be so that tells you some things also he would do these really strange mind game things he would give Walter Jr. a gift of course Walter would be happy to receive a gift and then his father would turn around and say now go give that to the church so that kind of plays with uh, one's head a little bit so I think we can all agree that his father played a role in some of Walter's problems. Even from a younger age, he cared little about friendship and had a particular dislike for girls and women. He was a self-described shy, unathletic boy who hated girls and never dated. He refused to go on family excursions. He didn't have a hobby. He kept his feelings to himself, avoided his mother, and he was self-contained and self-reliant he said that he liked his own company. He continued that to be that way until about the age of 13. His personalities and idiosyncrasies didn't change, but he did develop a love for photography, but not just any photography, like birds and nature scenes and family portraits. No, he was a voyeur voyeuristic creeper. He didn't like to be around people, like I said, but he loved to watch them. And the camera lens was like a barrier between him and them. And he would record the physical details of people and their bodies without them knowing. At this age, this is when his grandfather really started to play a big role in his life. And it's really too bad that his grandfather didn't have a real positive influence on his life because W.W. Keene was an amazing guy. I think he was a really cool and important figure in medicine in the late 1800s, straight up until the mid 30s, 40s, 50s. Actually, I'm going to redact that. <laughs> he was born in 19, sorry, he was born in 1837, so he really couldn't have an impact in Though he did live to 94. So he had an, an impact in the mid to late 1800s, right up into the early 1900s. He got his bachelor's degree and master's from Brown University. And then he went to the Jefferson School of Medicine in Philadelphia in 1860. And they only taught the very basics of medicine. And he found that very frustrating. So within a year, he left med medical school and became a surgeon in the Civil War, where he got his MD. During this time, a friend of his offered him a position at the U.S. Medical Hospital for Diseases of the Nervous System, and he studied epilepsy, paralysis, and the results of horrible war wounds, and he agreed to go there. And him and his colleagues wrote some really important papers on the treatment of wounds, gunshot wounds, 
disease, you name it, things that result from the ravages of war. And he also treated nervous disorders caused by explosions. So really, he was a pioneer in the treatment of PTSD, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. He was a professor to over 10,000 students throughout his career and made a huge impact on them. After the war was over, his reputation grew and he became known as a doctor who was unafraid to aggressively interfere, sorry, intervene and was at his best in difficult situations. By I mean aggressively intervene was that he would do whatever it took in an emergency situation to help someone. And this is where I think he was a pioneer in emergency medicine. Therefore, thus, you can see why I like this dude. In 1893, he became the official surgeon to President Grover Cleveland, and he had actually operated on him twice. And this is why Grover wanted him around. So his fame was making him very wealthy. In 1887, he operated and removed a brain tumor from a 26-year-old by the name of Theodore Daviler. And it was the first ever brain tumor removal surgery in the U.S. And the man went on to live another 30 years. Other important medical breakthroughs that he brought into the medical world was the invention of the colostomy. And a colostomy is a surgical operation where a piece of the colon or bowel is diverted to a man-made opening in the abdomen so that it passes the damaged part of the colon, such as colon cancer, Crohn's disease, or a bowel obstruction. And this surgical invention has saved and continues to save millions of lives. And he was a very strong advocate or supporter of aseptic technique. He believed in hand washing, sterilizing instruments, especially in between patients. He believed in draping and gowning and gloving and masking, cleansing the surgical area with antiseptic, and even to the point of he was using different substances to treat bacteria and wounds. So he saved a lot of body parts and saved a lot of lives. He also invented the cardiac massage. And that's when, if you ever watched a TV show or a movie where there's an emergency situation and the doctor says, crack the chest, stat. I had to throw that in there. This is when the, the sternum is cut and separated and the doctor will reach in and gently massage the heart to like uh, the rhythm of a heartbeat to try to help it along or to get it restarted. Just to, to finish up with this guy, he was a religious man. He really wasn't motivated by fame. He wrote nine medical books, earned 11 honorary degrees, and when his wife passed away, he mourned her deeply for the rest of his life and never remarried again. So this guy was a pretty amazing guy. Walter started to spend a lot of time with him. W.W. Keene took him on a cruise in Europe and they developed sort of um, admiration for each other. Of course, Keene really liked Walter, but Walter, all he could do was admire him and not feel any closeness. And what he learned about his grandfather was that he had a lot of prestige, was very respected. 
Walter wanted what his grandfather had. And the only way he knew how to do that was by respecting him. W.W. Keene was known as a doctor that aggressively treated patients, like I said earlier, in emergency situations. But all Walter got out of that was aggressively treated. And he obviously just it didn't connect in his head that there's a difference between being aggressive in what you want to get, no matter how you want to get, and aggressively treating to save and heal and help. So at 16 years old, Freeman went to Yale University and he didn't know what to study. He was a socially awkward guy. No fraternity wanted him. He continued to despise girls. He was clumsy and hated sports. He was fired by the newspaper for writing inappropriate articles. He hated going home for the holidays and when he did, he would sit around by himself and mope until he returned to school. His marks were really poor in his sophomore year because he hated physical and social sciences and was terrible at math. And he just continued on with this creepy photography. In 1914, he got his first real job. He never had to work before in his life because he was wealthy, spoiled, and privileged. And he worked as an apprentice machinist. So this led him to the third year where he thought about becoming an engineer, but he continued to be crappy at math. He, at this time, saw that he needed to improve his social life so that he can make connections in the world. He was starting to catch on to some things. So you're also going to see at this point, he started developing a really weird sense of style. So at 16, he went out and he bought himself a fancy suit and would drive his peers around in his grandfather's limo to go to the movies. And of course, that didn't get him any friendships. It just got people that wanted to hang around with him to drive around a limo and go to movies with. Since we're on the subject of how he dressed, and a lot of the subject matter that I tell you about is pretty dark and pretty heavy. So I thought I'd bring you a little bit of levity in regards to Mr. Walter Freeman. He continued to develop his look to impress. He would wear a three-piece suit, wear a goatee, and he loved his goatee, and he liked to wear it pointy because he liked when his patients would tug on it. Yeah, I know. I'm sure he had other people tugging on it too. Tugging on other things. Anyway. <laughs> okay, he also wore round glasses that were scratched and milky and foggy because he wanted to look like a dusty old professor. He liked to walk around with a walking stick and wear a sombrero. The most interesting part of his outfit was a gold monogram ring that he had hanging from a gold watch pocket chain. And he would hang that from his pocket on the outside of his suit. Well, here's a story about the gold ring. While working as an intern in the emergency room, a young man arrived with a gold ring stuck on his penis. It was swollen and turning black. So Freeman cut the ring off the guy's junk and saved the family jewels. The young man asked for his ring back. I mean, it was a gold ring, but, Re but Freeman refused to give it back to him saying that it was a specimen. So this is what Freeman wrote in his diary. The boy asked for the ring, but I told him it was a specimen and that I had to keep it. 
I had the ring repaired and had the Freeman crest engraved on it. Does anyone find that a little bit weird? For years after, he would wear the ring and call it his penis ring and would brag about it, how he had acquired it, and bring as much attention to it as possible. Now, think about this. He stole the ring from this guy who had it removed from his wiener schnitzel. Like, come on. He repairs it, put the family crest on it, and wears it like a trophy. Like, how many moral, ethical lines did he cross here? He broke the law, and the most intriguing thing is, what would Freud think? Now back to Yale. During his third year, he continued to want to be an engineer, but he continued to blow at math. His education was temporarily put on hold because he got typhoid. Yes, typhoid. Ooh, you hear the thunder? I kind of like it. I hope it doesn't ruin it for you guys, but I kind of like it. So his, his education was put on hold because he got typhoid. And then after toy, typhoid, he got a streptococcal invention, infection, like a, a strep throat type thing. This guy was always sick and not just with a cold. He got full out serious diseases that, dare I say, should have killed him. Anyway, he lost a semester in school, and during his time off, while he was in the hospital, he decided that he didn't want to be an engineer, that he wanted to be a doctor. He brought this forth to his father, and I don't know why, because he hated his father, and he said, hey dad, I'm thinking of becoming a doctor. His dad said, don't do it. Become an engineer, you can retire early, early and make a lot of money, and to him, you know, he was never going to take his father's advice. He graduated from Yale in 1916. He started at the medical school. He started medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. He loved organic chemistry, formulas, biochemistry, instrumentation, and he loved working in the lab. Here are some more interesting facts about Walter Freeman. He almost killed himself while working at school. This is crazy. So he was working in the lab with some sodium cyanide, so cyanide, and he was using a pipette, which is like a little straw, to draw up some of the sodium cyanide solution to use in whatever mad scientist test he was doing. For some reason, he decided to put the pipette in his mouth like a toothpick, but he put the wrong end in, and he got the cyanide in, and he had chest pains, difficulty breathing, he fell to the floor, he almost passed out and puked. How did this not kill him? Anyway, while flailing on the ground and such, he knocked over some stuff and caused a fire and almost blew up the lab. Yes, this is Walter Freeman. While in school, he started to develop an obsession with some of his professors. And the ones that he developed obsessions for, not surprising, were usually arrogant, narcissistic jerks. He loved his biochemistry professor, and he left a great impression on him because this professor would wow his students with theatrical teaching methods. He would draw anatomical sketches on the chalkboard using both his hands simultaneously. And Walter saw that, and in the future he would use this exact teaching method himself. So while continuing on in school, he grew a very strong interest in the nervous system. So he studied under another professor, Charles Burr, and this guy was really morbid and discussed morbid, dark things in an entertaining way and 
course, Walter loved that as well and would adopt that. So the war continued to rage on, and when Walter was old enough to serve in the war, he went to his grandfather, war hero grandfather, and said, please get me out of it. And of course, his grandfather couldn't get him out of it, but he got him a cushy, sweet little position in the medic, like in the Merc, which is Medical Enlisted Reserve Corps. So this time, he would serve in the very dark and distant shores and lines of New Jersey. He was assigned to an army hospital there, and I don't know how he survived it. He did autopsies and embalmings. But while this was going on, the world and the war were being devastated by the Spanish flu. And he got it, right? No! The guy is surrounded by corpses, infected with Spanish flu. He's walking around people that were dropping off like flies with the Spanish flu, and he didn't get it. Probably because he had the immune system of a frickin' cockroach at this point. So the school actually shut down for a little while because of this, but then reopened later on. And he started to study under a, the name of a professor called Dr. William Spiller, who had a really big influence on his love of neurology. He found his lectures boring, but for some reason he was obsessed with getting the attention of Dr. Spiller. But Dr. Spiller could not stand this guy. And he never seemed to get the message. He would stop by all times of the day to try to break out in conversation and Spiller would blow him off. This would play a role in the future and you'll see how. He graduated in 1920. And as he was finishing up school, his father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He knew nothing about it because he really had nothing to do with his family and he was rolled up in, in school. His family tried to correspond with him and he ignored them, wouldn't read the letters, etc. So by the time he graduated, his father was close to death and he showed little or no interest to him. He did go home, maybe spent a little bit of time with him, but pretty much didn't really care. So when his father did die on December 20th, 1920, Walter said his father's death came as a relief. And when the funeral was over in the limo on the way back home, he said, well, now that he's gone, I'm the head of the family. Nice, nice, cold jerk. He made sure as well that he got all of his father's estate. He got it fast within a week. His mother was bequeathed a small amount but he could not get his hands on that. The money that was given to him as part of the state was to be divided among all his brothers and sisters, and he didn't give them a penny. He kept it all for himself. He obviously didn't care that his father died. He let everybody know that he was the boss now and that the inheritance was for him, continuing to be cold, callous, and self-serving. In 1920, he had an internship at Pennsylvania Hospital where he studied neuropathy. And in this situation, he had to work as part of a group. He said that it was scut work. He didn't work with other people unless he was in charge. And he worked like a jerk. He did a crappy job and had a temper tantrum until he was given a position where he chose, where he wanted to go. But of course, and he worked with a professor called Charles, sorry, Charles Frazier, who was an excellent surgeon, but a complete ass. And of course, he really admired this guy and adopted that personality as part of his repertoire of being a professor later in his career. 
This is the first time that he saw an actual brain, a live brain, and he thought it was the most amazing thing he sa saw, but he said, but I'll never be a surgeon because surgeon surgery is boring. That'll be an interesting thing to note in the future as well. After this, he got a scholarship to go practice overseas, which was really common in the time to learn practices in Europe. He worked at the Salt Petriere, I hope I'm saying it properly, which was a very famous uh, French hospital where very famous doctors trained there, like Dr. Charcot and Dr. Freud, among a few. When he arrived here, he called this medical institution that everyone revered an old barn of a place out of date filled with old women. Nice. Anyway, he studied under a doctor named Pierre Marie, and he studied different um, neurological disorders. While on his Germany run, he got a call from his grandfather, W.W. Keen, who had spoken to the Surgeon General at the time, Admiral Stitt, and got him a sweet job at a hospital called St. Elizabeth's in Washington, D.C. Now, I know I already went over this stuff before, but I just really wanted to touch on it again, because it's all going somewhere, trust me. While working in the lab, he noticed among the uh, patients, because he also worked in the, the, the morgue as well for St. Louis Hospital, he noticed that when it came to schizophrenic, schizophrenic patients, that he thought he saw some physical differences between schizophrenics and other mental issues, uh, health issues, or just people, the average person. So he decided that he wanted to measure and examine their bodies to see if he could come up with some kind of theory or proof that there is physical differences. Of course, that's a load of crap. There is no mental health doesn't take on a look. Um, you're not born looking a certain way and saying, oh, yeah, you're, that's what you're going to be because you, know, you have blonde hair, whatever. So what he did was, you, th you think, you know, you could put someone on a table and you could measure them and all that kind of stuff. No, he decided to hang the cadavers by tongs in the air, have someone help him, then hang them by chains by their arms, and then he would measure them. He did this to 1,200 people and found that there really weren't any differences. Go frickin' figure. He decided to take pictures of all of them front, back, side, because that's what he loved to do. And in those pictures, which is obvious to the rest of, our, our, of us, is that you could see the ravages of time and horror that these people experienced in these terrible, terrible snake pit of these hospitals. They were malnourished and, and dirty with sores and the, their skin was a you know, terrible color and they were drawn and old beyond their years. And you could just see all of that. And of course, he didn't notice it at all. It was just par for the course with Walter and his inability to feel. So I think I'm going to end the episode here because in the next episode, I want to talk about him being a professor and his early stages of uh, his practice of prefrontal lobotomy and his victim patients and tell about all, all that went on in that time and what this sick 
bastard continue to do and you can see the progression of his psychopathy so i'm going to leave that with you and and that will be coming up shortly so thank you for joining me today but wait wait right there don't forget it's time for the suture room welcome to the suture room have I got a treat for you today. I don't just have one story, but I have two. They're short and sweet, but I thought they would be perfect to put together. So come in and lay back and relax. I also have a warm blanket for you today because the blanket warmer just got filled up. Snatched you one of those and a cold little plastic container of apple juice. There was actually one that I found hidden in the back. It was probably someone that hid it there for themselves on break later. But anyway, here you go. Pillow, legs up, warm blankie, apple juice, and let's get started with story time. A weird, wacky, wild story, true story, that happened to me while I worked as an emergency room nurse. I'm calling the theme of today's stories, Bathroom Follies. Here's the first one tap dancing. We got a call from dispatch one night that we had a patient coming in with a serious genital injury. And that's never fun. The story is short and not so sweet. The man got his penis stuck into a bathtub faucet tap. He tried to pull it out himself, but he wasn't able to get it out without causing severe damage. So he hollered for his wife to come into the room to call 911. Now, I wonder what his wife was thinking, seeing her husband in a kneeling position in the bathtub with his Johnson stuck up a faucet. Did she laugh? Did she yell at him? Did she, I mean, what did she do? <laughs> I would have loved to been a little bird to see that. Anyway, the fire department arrived and they were unable to get it out. So they uh, cut the faucet off, not with the jaws of life, but they did remove the faucet from the wall and came to the hospital. He was stable and then taken off to surgery to remove the faucet. So when he was asked how he got his penis stuck in a faucet, he said he slipped and fell in it flew up in the air and popped in. Yeah, I'm sure that sounds plausible. That, yeah, that's, that definitely could have happened. <laughs> anyway, the guy was fine. And this is just another one of those crazy and wacky stories. The next story I'm calling Missed Call. There was a gentleman that was very well dressed a businessman that came into the EO, the ER, into the ER, uh, walking kind of funny, saying that he had something stuck up his bum. Now you guys are gonna think that I've got some kind of anal fixation, but I don't. These things happen, honestly. And I know you like these stories too, so don't judge. Don't be hating. Anyway, as it turns out, he had a cell phone stuck his bum. When asked how it got up there, he said he slipped and fell in the tub 
and the cell phone fell and went up his bum. Of course these things happen. My God, aren't we lucky that more of us don't get cell phones stuck up our bum from slipping and falling in the shower? Anyway, this was a little while ago. It was a Blackberry. And (laughs) when they took x-rays, it lit up. You could see every bit of the phone and he was really upset because being a businessman he uh was expecting (laughs) some phone calls (laughs) and he couldn't get to his voicemail and he couldn't get to his contacts (laughs) so he was in great distress not so much because he had discomfort from that being up his bum but because he couldn't carry on with business and he shouldn't have been messing with his business, if you know what I mean. So anyway, they removed the phone. And I'm just wondering, as they took it out, was it ringing? And did he answer it? And who was on the other end? Please forgive me. Anyway, that's it for today's episode. And the end of today's stories in the suture room. Please join me next week while I'll have some more tales of woe. Of woe! Anyway, thank you for joining me on Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And this is where you may find that sometimes it's the cure that kills you. <laughs>